Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as always, I want to thank you for listening. I say this every single show, but I never thought that um, I would be doing this for as long as I have. Um, I definitely never thought that um, as many people would listen or that people would listen to me from around the world. Um, It still amazes me that I have as many listeners from as many different backgrounds as I do. Um, So if any of you were wondering, um, we have the most listeners in the United States, the second most listeners in New Zealand, which still completely blows my line, then the United Kingdom, Canada, and out of nowhere, Germany. Oh my God, thank you guys. I just, I don't know what to say. And then Australia, France, Serbia. I don't know where, once again, that is coming from. Ireland. And then it looks like we also had Israel as well um, so far this month. So thank you guys. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. And I do know that we have listeners from all over the world. Um, We've also had people from Singapore, Norway, Switzerland, Portugal, Spain, Nigeria, Romania, Finland, Sweden, Japan, Hong Kong, Denmark, South Africa, Malaysia, Nicaragua. Um, So just all over the world in the past. And I just can't thank you enough for continuing to listen. Um, Give us a uh, review on your platform, whatever platform you listen to us on. It helps us get into those um, lists, those recommended lists. We really appreciate that. If you want to uh, reach out and say hi on social media, that'd be much appreciated. We're updating the Patreon page. I've decided I'm going to continue to do lives once a month um, with the Dumber Than a Sack of Hair, and I'm just going to leave it as something anybody can uh, listen to. Um, And I'm just so I'm going to working on updating the Patreon page. I just haven't had a great amount of time with my work. Um, As some of you may know, I'm an essential worker here as a social worker. So I've been out um, running errands for people, getting diapers and formula, things that um, are in limited supply for people so they don't leave their house as much. Where I am, we haven't completely opened back up yet. Uh, So um, mostly I'm helping um, my clients that are on the outside. Um, be able to stay in, um, helping them work with their landlords so that we are not looking at evictions and things like that. So um, as things are starting to go back to normal, I'm going to be able to try and get on a more regular upload schedule. And then as well, I'll be taking a vacation for my job, very short one, and then a little bit of a longer one that'll give me some time to be able to uh, get on a regular upload schedule and then as some of you may or may not know I'm also going to be working on a new podcast uh, called American Policing Notes on a Scandal where each season I will be looking at a different police department and going through its history so that you can see how each police department has different issues um, systematic issues and how they're different based on the city. So that's just a little bit of an idea how things are going to be progressing going forward. Um, We've all been struggling to get back to a place, a sense of normalcy with everything going on. Um, So just to give you an idea where we are. So this week we're going to wrap up the series on the Black Panthers. um, And 
the next episode we'll get back into that rhythm that we have with our um, individual episodes we will move on to the grievance collector and let's start wrapping this up in 1966, the year the Black Panther Party was founded in Oka, California, the New York City Police Department commenced its own investigation into the Black Panthers. Detective Ralph White of the New York City Police Department was directed to infiltrate the Black Panther Party and submit daily reports on the party and its membership. The NYPD regularly communicated with the police departments throughout the country sharing its information on the Black Panther Party, its members, and activities. The NYPD was also working with the FBI on a daily basis. On August 29, 1968, FBI Special Agent Henry Naley reported on his meeting with a member of the NYPD Special Unit investigating the Black Panthers. Special Agent Naley acknowledged that the FBI's New York field office has been working closely with the special unit in exchanging information of mutual interest and to our mutual advantage. An FBI inspector's review for the first quarter of 1969 shows that the NYPD, in conjunction with the FBI, had an interview and arrest program as part of their campaign to neutralize and disrupt the Black Panthers. So in other words, they were to just interview them and arrest them. It didn't matter if the arrest actually gave them anything. Interview and arrest, period. The NYPD advised the FBI that these programs have severely hampered and disrupted the Black Panthers, particularly in Brooklyn, where for a while the Black Panther operations were at a complete standstill and, in fact, never actually recovered. A series of FBI documents revealed a joint FBI-NYPD plan to gather information on Black Panther members and their supporters in the late 69. During an unprovoked attack by off-duty police members, police department members on Black Panther members attending a court appearance in Brooklyn, a brief, the briefcase of leader David Brothers was stolen by the NYPD and its contents were photocopied and given to the FBI. Rather than seeking to prosecute the off-duty police officers for theft, the FBI ordered a review of the names and telephone numbers that were given to them so they could take the appropriate action against the individuals. That appropriate action included an effort to label brothers and two other Black Panther leaders, Jorge Aponte and Robert Collier, as police informants. On December 12, 1968, the FBI's New York office proposed circulating flyers warning the community of the danger posed by brothers Collier and Appointe. The NYO proposed the flyers be left in restaurants where Negroes are known to frequent. The BSS later told the FBI that its proposal was successful in that brothers had come under suspicion by the Black Panther Party. An FBI memorandum dated December 2, 1968, captioned COINTELPRO, lists several operations during the previous two-week period. It closes by stating that every effort is being made in, in the program to misdirect the operations of the Black Panther Party on a daily basis. In August 1968, Daraba bin Wahid, then known as Richard Daraba, joined the Black Panther Party and within a few months was promoted to a position of leadership. He was soon identified by the Bureau and by the NYPD as a key agitator 
and placed on the FBI Security Index and Agitator Index and Black Nationalist Photograph Album. That is so offensive that COINTELPRO had a Black Nationalist Photograph Album. To this day still, there is not a White Nationalist Photograph Album. There is not a book of just mug sheets of white nationalists or white supremacists, even though they do have like lists of hate groups and they do have, you know, they do have sheets of people that they believe are involved in terrorism and people who are belong that belong to hate groups but they don't have just a book of all their their mug sheets together in what they call the photo album so the fact that they just have this book put together of all these black people black nationalists in the black nationalist photo album it's not only is it offensive but it also begs the question that when they were having people pick these people out of a lineup were they picking them out of the black nationalist photo album when they picked their picture out because if they did it already creates a bias because their photo is in an album full of other known you know people who are are being called you know terrorists and agitators already by the media so if they are being their photos are being picked out of this album they're already being tainted by having their picture in with these individuals. FBI supervisors instructed the organization to develop better liaisons and closer working relationships with the NYPD and their investigation of Jaraba Bin Wahad. In April 2nd, 1969, Bin Wahad and 20 other members of the Black Panther Party were indicted on charges of conspiracy in the so-called Panther 21 case. An NYPD memorandum notes that the Panther 21 arrests were considered a summation of the overt and covert investigation that commenced in 1966. In a bi-weekly report to FBI headquarters listing several counterintelligence operations, the FBI reported that to date, the New York PD organization has conducted over 500 interviews with Black Panther members and sympathizers. Additionally, arrests of Black Panther Party members have been made by bureau agents and NYPD. These interviews and arrests have helped disrupt and cripple the activities of the Black Panther Party in the New York City area. Every effort will be made to continue to pressure the Black Panther Party. In July 1969, the NYPD sent officers to Oakland, California to monitor the Black Panther Party's nationwide conference calling for community control of police departments. So let's think about this for a moment. The NYPD sent officers to another state where they have no jurisdiction to carry out surveillance. How much do you need to have a problem with black folks to send your officers on the taxpayer dime across the entirety of the country to monitor them where you don't have the jurisdiction to do a damn thing. An NYPD memorandum candidly acknowledged that the community control of the police may not be in the interests of the department. 
Through its warrantless wiretaps of the Black Panther Party's telephones, the FBI learned that the Black Panther Party was trying to raise the $100,000 bail that had been set for Ben Wahid, whose release was considered by the Black Panther Party to be a priority over the other 20 defendants due to his leadership role in the organization. Fundraising efforts were impeded by the FBI and NYPD counterintelligence organizations. For example, following a fundraiser at the home of conductor Leonard Bernstein, the FBI sent falsified letters to those in attendance in order to thwart the aims and efforts of the Black Party Panther, the Black Panther Party, excuse me, in their attempt to solicit money from socially prominent groups. Unable to raise bail, Duraba bin Wahid spent the next year incarcerated. The FBI continued to target Black Panther Party community programs. For example, the FBI pressured several churches not to institute the Black Panther Party's free breakfast for children program at their parishes. How awful and inhumane do you have to be to pressure churches not to feed children breakfast? Like, really think about this. How much of a problem do you have to have with people to pressure someone not to feed their children? Like, you can have a problem with the organization and feel that they're engaged in terrorist tactics, but their free breakfast program is separate from that. It's being carried out by churches that are not affiliated with the Black Panther Party. So for you to go into those communities and pressure the churches not to give out free lunches and free breakfasts to the children in those communities that are not affiliated with the Panthers and have nothing to do with what's going on shows that you really are racist and you really do have a problem with the community, not the Panthers, the community that they're trying to improve. In September 1969, an NYPD representative told the FBI that the Black Panther Party was disintegrating in New York. By March of 1970, the Black Panther Party had raised enough money to post bail for the most articulate leaders and chose Mr. Bin Wahid for release. The FBI ordered that he be immediately and continuously surveilled and that donors of bail money be identified. Director J. Edgar Hoover remind his, reminded his New York office that the activities of the Panther 21 defendants were of vital interest to the seat of government. Through their warrantless wiretaps of the Black Panther Party offices and residences, the FBI became aware in May 1970 of the dissatisfaction among New York Black Panther Party members, including Bin Wahid, with the West Coast Black Panther Party members. A COINTELPRO operation prepared by the New Haven field office and submitted to the FBI's New York office consisted of an FBI-fabricated note wherein Bin Wahid accused Black Panther Party leader Robert Bay of being an informant. The successful operation resulted in Dorba Bin Wahid's demotion within the Black Panther Party. Aware of his disillusionment, the FBI disseminated information regarding the Black Panther Party strife to the media and participated in a plan to either recruit Bin Wahid as an informant or have the Black Panther Party members believe he was an agent of the FBI. In August 1970, Black Panther Party leader Huey P. Newton was released from prison. A plethora of counterintelligence actions followed, 
which sought to make Newton suspicious of his fellow Black Panther Party members, particularly people like Bin Wahid, who were from the East Coast. By early 1971, the plan bore fruit. On January 28, 1971, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover reported that Newton had become increasingly paranoid and had expelled several loyal Black Panther Party members. Newton responded violently. The Bureau feels that the this near hysterical reaction by what they called the egotistical Newton is triggered by any criticism of his activities, policies, or leadership qualities. And some of this criticism undoubtedly is the result of our COINTELPRO project, now in operation. This operation is enormously successful, resulting in a split within the Black Panther Party without violent repercussions. In early January 1971, Fred Bennett, a Black Panther Party member affiliated with the New York chapter, however, was shot and killed, allegedly by Newton supporters. Newton came to believe that Ben Wahid was plotting to kill him. Ben Wahid, in turn, was told by Connie Matthews, Newton's secretary, that Newton was planning to have Ben Wahid and the Panther 21 co-defendants, Edward Joseph and Michael Tabor, killed during his upcoming East Coast speaking tour. As a result of the split and fearing for his life, Bin Wahid, along with Tabor and Joseph, were forced to flee during the Panther 21 trial. Afini Shakur, a Panther 21 co-defendant of Bin Wahid, and yes, that's Shakur, pregnant with Tupac, declined to go underground with her comrades. And on May 13, 1971, the Panther 21, including Dorba bin Wahid were acquitted of all charges in less than one hour, following what was at that time the longest trial in the history of New York City. Detective Edwin Cooper begrudgingly reported to defendant Michael Codd that the case was not proven to the jury's satisfaction. Alarmed and embarrassed by the acquittal, Director Hoover ordered an intensification of the investigation of the acquitted Panther 21 members with special emphasis on Bin Wahid and anyone had, who had become a fugitive. On May 19, 1971, NYPD officers Thomas Curry and Nicholas Benatti were shot on Riverside Drive in Manhattan. Two nights later, two other officers, Waverly Jones and Joseph Pignatti, were shot and killed in Harlem and separate communiques delivered to the media, the Black Liberation Army claimed responsibility. Immediately after these shootings, the FBI initiated an investigation of the incidents called New Kill as an extension of their long-standing program against the Black Panther Party. Before any evidence had been collected, Black Panther members, in particular the acquitted Panther 21, were targeted as suspects. Hoover instructed the New York office to consider, consider the possibility that both attacks were the result of revenge taken against the NYPD. On May 26, 1971, J. Edgar Hoover met with President Nixon and told, who told Hoover that he wanted to make sure the FBI did not pull any punches gathering information on the situation in New York. Hoover informed his subordinates that Nixon's interests and the FBI's involvement were to be kept confidential. 
Nukil was a joint FBI NYPD operation involving the total cooperation and sharing of information between the two agencies. The FBI made all its facilities and resources, including its laboratory, available to the NYPD. In turn, the NYPD chief of detectives, Albert Seidman, who coordinated the NYPD's investigation, ordered his subordinates to give the FBI all available information, as well as all information from future investigations. On June 5, 1971, Bin Wahid was arrested during a BLA raid of a Bronx after-hours club, an NYPD-protected after-hours social club for a local drug merchant. Seized from inside this protected social club was a 45-caliber machine gun. Although the initial ballistics test on the weapon failed to link it with the the Curie Benetti police shootings, the NYPD publicly declared they had seized the weapon used in the shooting. The NYPD now had in custody a well-known and vocal Black Panther leader and allegedly the weapon linked to a police shooting. His prosecution and conviction would both neutralize an effective leader and justify the failed Panther 21 case but there was no direct evidence leaking him to the case. Pauline Joseph, a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, first introduced to him by Edward Jamal Joseph, became a, the state's prosecution star witness. Miss Joseph first surfaced when she made a phone call to the NYPD in June of 1971, supplying her name and address and stating that Ben Wahid and Edward Joseph were innocent of the shooting. She told the police that he did not do either shooting. The first person to arrive at her apartment was Lieutenant Sauer, the head of the 24th Precinct Detective Squad. Contrary to her original testimony at trial, Ms. Joseph continued initially to state that he was innocent. Later that day, when she was interviewed by Detective Edwin Cooper, Joseph repeated that he was innocent. She was arrested and committed as a material witness. For nearly two years, she remained in the custody of the New York County District Attorney's Office. She was repeatedly interviewed by state and federal authorities. Miss Joseph, while in custody, was recruited as a racial informant for the FBI. What the hell is that even? A racial informant? How are you a racial informant? What does that mean? Does that mean I'm supposed to what? Inform on race relations to you? Like, that's ridiculous. She was paid for her services and housed first in a hotel, then in a furnished apartment, paid for by the district attorney. Pauline Joseph, despite her diagnosis as a paranoid schizophrenic, became the star witness. Daruma bin Wahid was indicted for the attempted murder of the officers on July 30th, 1971. Although NYPD and FBI continuously interviewed Ms. Joseph and prepared written memorandums of the interviews, the assistant district attorney represented that except for one paragraph statement made on the night of her commitment and her grand jury testimony, there were no prior statements. The text of Miss Joseph's initial phone call was withheld by the prosecution through two trials. No notes of memorandum of the initial exculpatory interviews by Lieutenant Sauer and Detective Cooper were provided. Neither were reports of subsequent interviews during the two years she was in custody. After three trials, he was convicted of attempted murder and and sentenced 
to the maximum penalty of 25 years to life. Years later, in 1975, after learning of a congressional hearing which disclosed the FBI's covert operations, he filed a lawsuit in federal district court charging he had been the victim of numerous illegal and unconstitutional actions designed to neutralize him, including the framing. In 1980, after documents with Ben Wahid's name on them turned up in the Fred Hampton lawsuit against the Chicago Police Department and the FBI, the FBI and NYPD were ordered by a federal judge, Mary Johnson Lowe, the first black woman appointed to a federal bench, and also who happened to be a former member of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund to hand over any materials and to produce all files on Ben Wahid and the Black Panther Party, files that they claimed to that point did not exist. The FBI and NYPD documents revealed that Ben Wahid was indeed a target of a joint covert operation and for the first time depicted the FBD, FBI's intimate involvement in the investigation. The new kill file, which was finally produced and unredacted in 1987, 12, after 12 years of litigation, so they were in court for 12 years to get this file. It contained numerous reports which should have been provided to Bin Wahid during his trial. So. In the United States, when you go to trial, it is illegal for an attorney to withheld anything from the other side. So if you are a district attorney and you are prosecuting a case, it's called discovery. You must turn over all interviews with a suspect that your police have all interviews that you the district attorney and anyone in your office has with them all of those have to be turned over to their lawyer and their defense team that's all in discovery and that's what they use to build their case and build their defense if you withhold a single piece of discovery it doesn't matter what it is a single piece of, of the discovery then they have grounds to file for an appeal on the grounds that their due process, meaning that their ability to have a fair trial was violated because you did not adhere to the rules of law. So it's even worse in this case where they knowingly withheld things that would clear him. So for two years, this woman repeatedly told them he did not kill those people. Her initial outcry statement when she initially called was he didn't kill those people. They went from, oh, she's mentally ill. We can twist her. We can convince her. We'll just brainwash her into saying what we need her to say. Basically, they figured she's mentally ill and she's poor. We're going to pay her for the next two years. We're going to give her a good place to live and she'll be so thankful. She'll just say whatever we want her to say. That's what they were banking on. But that doesn't matter because even though she may have said what they wanted in court, the fact that for two years they have actual interviews where she did not say what they wanted, that carries more weight than the fact that on the stand, in three, three times on the stand, she did. The fact that it took them two years to get her to the point to say that 
that carries more weight because let's be honest if you're on a jury and you hear that they whisked this woman away locked her in a hotel room and for two years the police just drilled this woman and just over and over again kept telling her what to say for two years of course she's going to come here and say what they want her to say so yes she they withheld evidence which is a giant no-no in our legal system so and it took them 12 years to get this all to come out in a decision announced december 20th 1992 justice bruce allen of the new york state supreme court ordered a new trial the court exhaustively analyzed the prosecution's circumstantial case particularly the testimony of pauline joseph the court found the inconsistencies and omissions in the prior statements contradicted the testimony crucial to establishing the people's case the inconsistencies said the court went beyond mere details and involved what one would expect to have been the most memorable aspects of the night of the shooting so on january 19 1995 the district attorney moved to dismiss the indictment acknowledging that they could not prove their case the indictment was dismissed, and after more than 20 years in prison, Mr. Ben Wahid is free. The COINTELPRO offshoot Newkill and later CHESROVE, an FBI acronym named after Asita Shakur, and other targets as well that were forced underground by COINTELPRO instigated violence, were discussed as well. In the three years after the 1971 Black Panther Party split, Black Panther Party members Harold Russell, Woody Green, Twyman Myers, and Zaid Shakur were killed during confrontations with law enforcement. Others were captured and charged with crimes. All were tried at the time at a time when the public and juries knew nothing about the actions of COINTELPRO. During these trials, as a result of Dorba Bin Wahid and Geronimo Pratt, exculpatory evidence was withheld and other violations of the Constitution were committed. However, post-conviction motions on behalf of these former Black Panther Party members were unsuccessful, and they remain in prison to this day. They include Anthony Jaleel Bottom, Herman Bell, Robert Seth Hayes, Sandita Akuli, Abdul Mahid. Two of these former Black Panther Party members died in prison. Albert New Washington in 2000 and Teddy Jai Heath in 2001. Both spent over 25 years in prison, but were died compassionate release even in their last days. Although COINTELPRO was first exposed during Watergate and incomparably more serious than anything charged against Nixon, it was virtually ignored by the national press and journals. A review of the program demonstrates the relative insignificance of the charges raised against Nixon specifically the charges pressed by the Congress in their articles of impeachment. In the early 70s, there occurred a seemingly endless series of revelations about governmental transgressions. A credibility gap was engendered by the federal executive branch having been caught lying way too many times, too red-handedly over too many years in its efforts to duping the public into supporting wars and actions against the American people. Then, on March 8, 1971, a group calling itself the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI broke into an FBI office in a small town called Media, Pennsylvania. 
they subjected the FBI to what the FBI had been habitually subjecting political dissidents to throughout the course of its history. That is, bureau parlance, a black bag job. The information they obtained was widely distributed through the left and peace movement channels and summarized in the Washington Post. An analysis of the documents in the FBI office revealed that 1% were devoted to organized crime, mostly gambling. 30% were manuals, routine forms, and similar procedural material. 40% were devoted to political surveillance and the like, including two cases involving right-wing groups, 10 concerning immigrants, and over 200 on the left or liberal groups. Another 14% of the documents concerned draft resistance and leaving the military without permission. The remainder, only 15%, were about bank robberies, murders, rapes, or interstate theft. So only 15% of the documents in this FBI office actually had to do, so 16% if you actually include the 1% that was devoted to actual organized crime. So only 16% of the documents in that office were devoted to actual ongoing crimes in the country. That's actually completely insane. Among 34 cases of inf infiltration for which some information is available, 11 involved white campus groups, college kids, 11 predominantly white peace groups or economic groups, 10 black and Chicano groups, and two white, green, white ring groups or white supremacist groups. So the majority of the people they infiltrated were students, peace movement groups, and minorities. Furthermore, in two-thirds of the 34 cases considered here, the, the, specie, the activities appear to have gone beyond passive information to provocation. One year later, the political scandal known as Watergate unraveled. When five men were arrested for breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee, located in the Watergate apartment and office complex in Washington, D.C. It was discovered that one of the men was employed by the committee to re-elect the president, or the beautiful acronym CREEP. <laughs> that just never ceases to be funny. And that break-in had been planned by two people with very close ties to the White House. In this peculiar and potentially volatile set of circumstances, a government-wide effort was undertaken to convince the public that its institutions were sound, that albeit in need of fine-tuning and a bit of house-cleaning, it, it was good. They were there for you. You could trust them. It was immediately announced that U.S. ground forces would be withdrawn as Vietnam as rapidly as possible. Televised congressional hearings were staged to get to the bottom of this, a spectacle which soon led to the resignation of a number of Nixon officials the brief imprisonment of a few of them, and an eventual resignation of the president himself. Oh, those must have been the days when people took accountability for their mistakes. Beginning in 1974, the Senate held hearings to investigate COINTELPRO and other intelligence agency abuses. No other congressional investigation into these types of matters has ever been so extensive, either before or since. The Senate Select Committee to Study Government Operations with Respect to Intelligence, commonly known as the Church Committee, after Chairman Frank Church, produced an extensive series of reports entitled Intelligent Activities and the Rights of Americans, encompassing not only COINTELPRO, but also a wide variety of other subjects, including electronic surveillance, 
by the NSA, domestic CIA mail opening programs, and the misuse of the IRS, the assassination of Kennedy, covert actions abroad, assassination and plots involving foreign leaders, and various topics related to military intelligence. The Church Committee found that COINTELPRO presumably set up to protect national security and prevent violence, but actually began to engage in other actions, which had no conceivable, rational relationship to national security. The unexpressed major premise of which is that COINTELPRO and the Bureau has no role in maintaining the existing social order and that its efforts should be aimed towards combating those who threaten the social order. This meant that the Bureau would take actions against individuals and organizations simply because they were critical of the government. The Church Committee report gives examples of such actions and how they violate the rights of free speech and association, where the FBI targeted people because they opposed U.S. foreign policy or criticized the police, actions that the 1968 Democratic National Convention got people arrested. January 1971. So before I move on, I just want to explain. The Church Committee, the reason this is important and it's relevant to what's happening now, is the Church Committee, their report stated that COINTELPRO was violating people's First Amendment rights by targeting them because of their belief systems and the people that they were associated with. That they were carrying out domestic intelligence on people because of their belief systems and that that was not acceptable. So the fact that we currently have people protesting in the United States and that we have police officers who are targeting certain protesters is similar. The fact that we have videos, uh, and I once again, I've expressed this before, I have no problems with police officers, I have police officers in my family. I have problem with the handful of police officers that are not treating the protesters appropriately. I have a problem with the handful of police officers. There are videos of police officers. They are dumping out protesters' water stations. They are destroying the first aid stations. That is not appropriate. They are targeting the protesters because of their beliefs, because they want police reform. What the church committee founded is that is not acceptable and that is not a way for American law enforcement to be behaving. That if you target them because of their belief, you are violating their First Amendment rights. So if you as a police officer are destroying medical stations getting rid of water and you are targeting the protesters because they want police reform you're violating their first amendment right you don't have to like what the protesters are standing for you don't have to agree with them but you can't target them because you don't agree with them that's why this is relevant there are many police officers coming forward and saying things you don't have to agree with them I don't believe every police department's issue is racism. I believe every police department has a systematic issue for a different reason. I just want to point that out because like I said, what some of these police, not all, some, what some, a handful of these police officers are doing to the protesters because they don't agree with their message has already been determined by our Congress 
to be a violation of their First Amendment rights. So, in January 1971, Huey P. Newton did expel several members of the Black Panther Party once he was released from jail. He expelled Geronimo Pratt, who since 1970 had been in jail facing murder charges. Newton also expelled two of the New York 21 and his own secretary, Connie Matthews, who then fled the country. In February 1971, Newton had a fallout with Eldridge Cleaver after they argued during a live broadcast. Newton expelled Cleaver and every single member of the Black Panther Party that were in an international, so anyone who was stationed outside of the United States, because remember there were several Black Panther members in Algeria at this point, there were many in Asia, there were many um, in other parts of the world that were much more supportive of the message and what the Panthers were doing, Cleaver expelled them all. Or, I mean, Newton expelled them all. In spring of 1971, Newton and Cleaver factions engaged in retaliatory assassinations of each other's members, resulting in the deaths of four people. In May of 1971, Bobby Seale is acquitted of ordering the murder of Rackley and returns to Oakland. Late 1971, hundreds of party members quit the Black Panther Party. September 1971, Newton visits and stays in China for 10 days. Newton tries to focus the Black Panther Party on Oakland schools and various social programs. During 1971, the Black Panther Party funded the Intercommunal Youth Institute with the intent of demonstrating how black youth ought to be educated. Erica Huggins was the director of the school and Regina Davis was an administrator. The school was unique that it did not have grade levels, but instead had skill levels. So an 11 year old could be in second level English and fifth level science. Elaine Brown taught reading and writing to a group of 10 to 11 year olds deemed uneducatable by the system. The school children were given free busing, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, books, and school supplies. Children were taken to have medical checkups and many children were given free clothes. Significant disagreements among the party leadership, however, over ideological differences led to a massive split within the party. Certain members felt that the Black Panthers should participate in local government and social services, while others encouraged constant conflicts with the police. For some supporters, the separations among political action, criminal activity, and social services, they just were too confusing and contradictory as the Panthers' political momentum was bogged down within the criminal justice system. These and other disagreements led to a massive split. While some Panther leaders, such as Huey Newton and David Hillard, favored a focus on community service coupled with self-defense, others, such as Eldridge Cleaver, embraced a more confrontational strategy. Cleaver deepened the schism in the party when he publicly criticized the entire party for adopting a reformist rather than revolutionary agenda and called for Hillard's removal. Cleaver was expelled from the central community, but led a splinter group, the BLA, which had previously existed underground as a parliamentary group, or as a paramilitary group, excuse me, paramilitary. The split became violent, as I said before, and resulted in the deaths of four people as Cleaver and Newton ordered the assassination of members of each other's parties. In 72, Newton shut down chapters all over the country and called key members to Oakland. 
Black Panther members and supporters win a number of minor offices in Oakland City elections later that year. In 73, Black Panther Party focuses nearly all of its resources on winning political power in Oakland. Seal runs for mayor, Elaine Brown runs for city council, and both lose. Many party members resign after this. In 74, Newton embarks on a major purge, expelling Bobby and John Seal, David and June Hillard, Robert Bay, and numerous other top party leaders. Dozens of the Panthers loyal to Seal resign or desert. Now, if you remember, Bobby Seale is one of the, he is one of the founding members of the party. So that's huge. In August of 1974, Newton murders Kathleen Smith, a teenage prostitute. He flees to Cuba. Elaine Brown takes over leadership in his absence. Now, uh, Huey Newton would not be the first Panther to flee to Cuba. There were a couple others one of which there's a great documentary about on Netflix. There's actually several documentaries. I'm going to tell you more about it later, but there is a documentary about a panther who hijacked a plane to flee to Cuba. So uh, he will not be the first to flee to Cuba. On 70th, December 74, accountant Betty Van Peter is murdered after threatening to disclose irregularities in the party's books. The party began closing down dozens of chapters and branches all over the country and bringing members in operations to Oakland during 72. The political arm of the Southern California chapter was shut down and its members all moved to Oakland through the underground military arm. The underground remains of the LA chapter, which had emerged from the Slauson Street, the Slauson Street gang, eventually re-emerged as the Crips. So think about that for a second. The underground remnants of the LA chapter of the Black Panthers re-emerged as the Slauson Street Crips, a street gang who first advocated social reform before de-evolving back into racketeering and drug trafficking. The party developed a five-year plan to take over the city of Oakland politically. Bobby Seale running for mayor and Elaine Brown running for city council, and as you know, that did not work. Many, many other Panthers have run for minor political offices since then. Minister of Education Ray Masai Hewitt created the Buddha Samurai, the party's underground security cadre. Newton expelled him from the party during 1972, but the security cadre remained in operation under the leadership of Flores Forbes. One of their main functions was to extort and rob drug dealers. In 74, Newton and eight other Panthers were arrested and charged with the assault on a police officer. Newton went in exile on Cuba to avoid prosecution for murder of Kathleen Smith, an 18-year-old prostitute. Newton was also indicted for pistol-whipping his tailor, Preston Callens. Although Newton confided to friends that Kathleen Smith was his first non-political murder, he was ultimately acquitted after one witness's testimony was impeached by her admission that she had been smoking marijuana the night of the murder and another pro prostitute recanted her testimony. Newton was also acquitted of assaulting Preston Callens after Callens refused to press charges. In 74, as Huey Newton prepared to go into exile, he appointed Elaine Brown as the first chairwoman of the party. Under Brown's leadership, the party became involved in organizing for more radical electoral campaigns. 
including Brown's 75 unsuccessful run for city council. The party supported Lionel Wilson in his successful election as the first black mayor of Oakland in exchange for Wilson's assistance in having criminal charges dropped against party member Flores Forbes, the leader of the Buddha Samurai cadre. In addition to changing the party's direction towards more involvement in the electoral arena, Brown also increased the influence of women in the Panthers by placing them in more visible roles. Panther leader Elaine Brown hired Betty Van Patter in 74 as a bookkeeper. Van Patter had previously served as a bookkeeper for the Ramparts magazine and was introduced to the Panther leadership by David Horowitz, who had also been the editor of Ramparts and was a major fundraiser for the Panther School. Later that year, after a dispute with Brown about the financial irregularities, Van Patter went missing. Some weeks later, her severely beaten corpse was found. There was insufficient evidence to charge anyone with Van Patter's murder, but the Black Panther Party leadership was almost universally believed to be responsible. Huey Newton later allegedly, allegedly, confessed that he ordered her murder and that she had been tortured and sexually assaulted before they killed her. Now, as we had talked about before, once Huey Newton came back from his exile, he absolutely just let the party go to crap. He just chopped the party apart. He sent people packing. He, you know, the party just fell apart. So with the demise of the party after um, Huey's paranoia, returning from exile, and everybody going their own ways because they couldn't agree about the leadership, good things did come from the party. Um, many scholars and activists date the party's downfall to the period before Brown's leadership and the fact that there was a shrinking matter of Panthers who were loyal to the party. Uh, it was officially over in 1980. Panther membership had dwindled to only 27 people. Panther-sponsored school closed in 82 amid a scandal over Huey Newton embezzling funds to feed his drug addiction. Now, many Panthers, they did... Um, offshoot into other organizations such as the family um, which was a combination of members of the weather underground and the black panthers and they were like i said there are parties all over the world and they did actually um they did actually influence other groups and groups that the planters um or that they did actually um influence are groups like Asada's Daughters, an all-black activist group in Chicago. It was founded in 2015 by Paige May. The group is named after the Black Panthers Asada Shakur, and the objective is very similar to the Black Panthers 10-point program. The Great Panthers, often used to refer for advocates for the rights of seniors. Polynesian Panthers, an advocacy group for Maori and Pacific Islanders in New Zealand. Shout out to my New Zealand listeners. Black Panthers, a protest movement that advocates for social judgment and rights for Mizrahi Jews in Israel. Please excuse me if I didn't pronounce that right. White Panthers used to refer to both the White Panther Party, a far left, anti-racist, white American political party of the 70s, as well as White Panthers UK, an unaffiliated group started by McFerrin. The Pink Panthers used to refer to LGBTQ rights organizations. The Dalton. 
Dalit Panthers, an Indian social reform movement which fights against caste oppression in Indian society. The British Black Panther movement, which flourished in London in the 60s and 70s, not affiliated with the Black Panther Party for Defense in the United States. The French Black Dragons, a black anti-fascist group closely linked with punk rock and rockabilly. The Young Lords, the Huey P. Newton Gun Club, which is an all-black gun club named after Huey P. Newton. The Memphis Black Autonomy Federation. The Anti-Defamation League, and this is just to note that the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center do include the Black Panthers on their list of hate groups. So these are two groups that track hate groups, all hate groups, whether you are white supremacist groups, black supremacist groups, whatever you are. So the reason that the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center include the Black Panthers on their list of hate groups is not so much because they consider them a black supremacist or a hate group, but it's more for their illegal actions and the fact that they were willing to commit crimes and murders in order to um, advance their political agenda. Now, uh, like I said, there are several really good uh, documentaries about the Black Panthers that are out there right now. So if you are um, looking for something, like I said, on uh, on Netflix, there is a there's a documentary about Huey Newton. There's also a documentary about uh, Panthers that have gone to um, Cuba. There is on um, Amazon Prime, there is a great documentary about the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And you'll hear a little more about how they were involved um, in Timothy Leary's escape and a little bit about how they knew about the, um, the Panthers. Um, PBS Public Broadcasting has a great documentary called Vanguard of a Revolution. It's um, more than one episode. It's probably the most inclusive and the best one that you're going to find um, out there. Um, I believe that it's also on... Um, Amazon Prime as well. So if you want to learn more about the Black Panthers, um, go check out Netflix and Amazon Prime. They both have a couple of really great um, documentaries about the Black Panther Party and the things that they went through. Other things, there's books. Check out um, Dr. Angela Davis. She has some great books um, to help you understand the struggle that they went through. Um, in the meantime, like I said, Next time that you hear from me, I'm going to go live this uh, weekend. Uh, we are going to take a look at uh, a list of some Karens who went way too far and ended up in prison. So you can hang out with me and laugh at that. And then two weeks from now, we will dive in and take a look at a grievance collector. Actually, the greatest, most well-known grievance collector of all time. So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing how and why people do such awful things.